welcome to the Philia podcast. Philia means daughter. We are the daughters of the women who came before us and we fight so that our daughters may be free. We are a women-led volunteer organization. Our vision is a world free from patriarchy where all women and girls are liberated. We seek to contribute to the women's liberation movement by building sisterhood and solidarity among women locally, nationally, and globally. By amplifying the voices of women, particularly those less often heard or purposefully silenced, and by defending women's human rights. Our podcast seeks to shed light on some of the most pressing issues facing women and girls around the world. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team. I just want to say welcome to everybody. Thank you ever so, ever so much for joining us this evening. Um, I'm Lisa Marie, and I'm one of the volunteers with Philia. And Philia is a women's rights organization. We're volunteer-led, women-led, and we have three aims. One is to build sisterhood and solidarity. That's locally, nationally, and globally. To amplify the voices of women, I would say particularly those less often heard or purposefully silenced, and to defend women's human rights. So welcome this evening. This is part of the Philia Legacy Project. Now, Philia organizes an annual women's rights conference, and we host that conference in a different city each year in order to meet new women, actually. Um, and we were invited to apply for funding to develop the Philia Legacy Project, which is basically a collaborative enterprise. So we link up with local women's organizations and work together to produce various projects. And this book club came from discussions with local women. So welcome to the Philia Legacy Project. Welcome to the book club. We've held a couple of sessions so far. One was with Hevo Wardair talking about FGM and her book Cut. One was Eswa Goldsmith, The Space Between Black and White. And this month, I am really delighted to introduce you to Jessica, Dr. Jessica Taylor. So a quick introduction. Jessica Taylor is a working class feminist author, senior lecturer, speaker and researcher with a PhD in forensic psychology. She's also founder and director of Victim Focus, which has resources, an academy and a blog focusing on forensic psychology, feminism and mental health. She also developed and launched the Victim Focus Charter to encourage all professionals to challenge and reduce victim blaming in their practice. And Philia has signed up to that. So thank you, Jessica, so much for being with us this evening. And the book that we're going to be looking at is Why Women Are Blamed for Everything, Exposing the Culture of Victim Blaming. So welcome, Jessica. Thank you. You're very, very welcome. It's an absolute pleasure. I want to say thank you for the book. Thank you for bringing so much information and research into one place. I'd like to say I enjoyed it, but I actually had mixed feelings reading it. I got really angry at points and um, exasperated with the way of the world. Um, but I did get an awful lot out of it. I want to thank you for bringing all of that information together and for making it so accessible that as many, uh, as many women as possible can read this. So I'm going to start off by going back a bit. I think the journeys of women finding their way to feminism and to their particular niche within the movement provide a fascinating insight into their works. So let's start by asking what brought you to this area of research? Mm, that's a really interesting question. So um, I decided, so well, the, right at the start, is that um, I'd already had um, 
a baby from rape when I was a teenager and I was a teenage mom and I was and I worked and it was really rough and everything and then I got pregnant again when I was 19 that wasn't planned it wasn't rape but it wasn't planned um and I remember after I'd given birth and I would, I'd gone home and I was sat in my bed feeding him um and it was like stupid o'clock in the morning and there was just something that hit me and I thought what like what are you going to do with your life like what can what what's going to happen now so you've you've got these two babies what job are you going to do one day like who are you going to be and I remember just sitting there thinking I have no idea and so the next day I went on this website that was for like volunteers, like to give your time voluntarily because I didn't have a lot of time because I had the babies and I was young, I was 19. And um, I just put my name and my address and some details and stuff into um, basically what was the volunteer centre at the time. And then we get back to you with opportunities like that you could give your time to local causes Um and so they got back to me um, and gave me an interview and I went and did it. And I had like no experience at all in anything. I had no qualifications. Um, I worked in gambling, which not a lot of people know. So I worked as like a call handler, like at Bet365 or like whatever. And that's like, that's what I did. Um, so I didn't have any other training or anything. And um, the first people that got back to me were victim support. And they were, and they said like, we have this role where you can work in a court um, one day a week and you can support victims of crime. And um, I remember thinking I could do that because I've been a victim of crime. And so I would be really good at it, which was a huge learning curve because as it turns out, being a victim of something does not make you an expert in that thing. Um, And I remember thinking I'll be so good at this. Like I would just be natural at it. Um, And that's not, what happens I needed a lot of training and and one of the things and I think I still think this was my biggest lesson and it was one of the most important lessons I ever had for my whole career was that I assumed that because as a woman I'd been through rape and violence and trafficking and exploitation that I would know what other women and girls needed and working in that role every week with women and girls that were coming to court to give evidence in trials for those crimes committed against them I learned really quickly that I was wrong and that I was making assumptions and that every single woman I met wanted something completely different, felt completely different, had lived a completely different life to me. Um, and I and I still think that that's something that really helped me going forward. So I was working, well, I was volunteering um, for victim support. And then um, I that was the first time that I'd come across like victim blaming really like not because obviously I'd had it in my personal life but I hadn't seen it at an institutional level I'd not seen it every day with professionals who are to the victim's faces saying one thing and then coming into my staff room and being like oh she's obviously lying and you're like what (laughs) like the sort of the way that it was set up was really hard to deal with. I felt like we were just setting women and girls up to fail every single day because I was put on what they used to call DV day. So there was one day where the courts would focus on domestic violence offences. And that was the day that I'd been asked to be rotated on. So that was where I built most of my experience was uh, domestic abuse offence cases in magistrates courts originally um and all of the but pretty much I think in all of the time I was there I think I supported one man the rest of them were were women and girls as you would expect um so I stayed in the criminal justice system for a while 
um, moved into management and then into senior management. And when I was 21, I was the area manager for the criminal justice system for the Vulnerable and Intimidated Witness program, which specialised in things like, um, you know, homicides, manslaughter, human trafficking, child sexual abuse, rape, sexual violence and domestic violence at a crown level. Um, and again, the victim blaming was disgusting. I, I honestly got to the point where I felt like I was colluding with it because my job was to prepare those women and girls for court and to give them as much advice and as much information as I possibly could. And yet it felt like it didn't matter how much support and how much information I gave them. Nothing could prepare them for being cross-examined and for the things that would get said about them and the way that the defence would talk to them and the people in the public gallery laughing at them while they were giving evidence and things like that. And I started to get to the point where I was getting to work every day and thinking, I don't know if I can keep doing this. This is disgusting. The actual whole system's broken right the way from like going and reporting the crime all the way through to sentencing. The whole thing was broken. And, you know, me and my team, I had about 50 staff across uh, several Crown Courts. Honestly, they were trying their absolute hardest. Everybody was doing what they could. But we were working in a system that inherently blamed women and girls that didn't believe them in the first place. So, like, how much good can you actually do? Um, So I around that time, like within those years, I realized I had no qualifications or anything. So So I was working all day and then I was studying all night for a psychology degree through the Open University because like that's obviously the only where that's the only university that would have taken me I had no A-levels like I left school when I was in the beginning of year 11 um so I did my degree like as I worked all night and on weekends and stuff to do that and um and yeah and then I left the criminal justice system and I went and worked in rape centers and domestic violence shelters and so I managed a rape and domestic violence center for two years um, that specialised in therapeutic counselling as as well as like helpline and face-to-face support. And the victim blaming there wasn't so much like, we don't believe you or why didn't you fight back and things like that. It was the fact that we were managing hundreds of cases and referrals from professionals that were suggesting that these women and girls were mentally ill, that were suggesting that they were not coping that they were exaggerating that they had low self-esteem that they were inherently vulnerable in some way that they you know um that they had borderline personality disorder that they were psychotic and that was like my second massive learning curve was that we weren't just not believing women and girls we were actually telling them they were mentally ill as well when they were trying to seek support So then I worked in that environment where I was fighting that constantly, sort of saying to professionals, there's nothing wrong with her. She's traumatised. She's been abused. Like, there's there's nothing wrong with her at all. She needs support. Um, And then uh, after that, I went, for the first time, I went and specialised in uh, the sexual um, exploitation and abuse of children and moved into um, child trafficking and child sexual exploitation um, in a role, like a senior role there. And um, and that, again, like th- these are all the reasons why I wrote the book was that around that time was the first time that it proper dawned on me that we actually apply these standards to children as well. So like we were working with nine and 10 year old girls where police were saying, well, she's, a, you know, she's a bit of a slag. She's easy. You're like, she's nine. 
like the, the things that were being said about children that had been trafficked, raped, abused, children that had been set on fire, you know, the things that these kids had been put through, predominantly girls. And I, when they went missing because the perpetrators had abducted them and trafficked them, I used to get the MISPERS, which is a missing persons report, and it would be what the police had written on that. And then when they found the girl, which would be three hours, two days, three weeks later, you'd get what would come through. It's called a found notification. And they would write things like where they were found, how they were found, were they in good health, were they injured, you know, that sort of thing. And the found notifications were disgusting. I actually started to compile them because the things that were being written about girls that had been locked in houses for weeks were atrocious. And... um, it was around that time that I decided to do a PhD to, to understand the psychology of why we cannot get our heads around the fact that it is male perpetrators that are to blame. Like every single environment I've worked in since I was 19 has found a way to convince women and girls that it is actually their problem, that it's their fault. Um, and that's how the book came about was that um, as I was, writing the PhD I wanted to explore the psychology of it I wanted to look at all the evidence I wanted to figure out why we did this and why we were so uncomfortable with just blaming men for rape like what is like why can't we just say well he chose to do that so therefore everything else is irrelevant um and then the book I guess came about because PhDs are not known to be accessible they're not known to be easily easily read um and I suffered really badly um, discrimination, like really bad during my PhD. And I actually um, took action against the university in um, a court case and I won um, for, for classism. Just the way I was treated, because I just didn't sound like them, I don't look like them, I didn't have the same interests as them. I wasn't there to like build a career as an academic and they didn't like it. And the way that I was treated and the things that were done to me were horrific. And it was around that time that I became really, really um, determined that the book and the stuff I was going to put out from then on was always going to be like as accessible and easy to read as possible. Not because women need things watering down or dumbing down, but because if we keep hiding all the evidence and the information in these paywall journals behind, you know, websites you can't get access to in language that you can't understand. There's so many journals and papers that I read. and just think, I don't know what any of that means. Why are you using massive words for no reason? Like you could have just used simple words and I would have understood your argument, but now I'm just going to ignore it. I can't read it. And I, I, I just, I don't want to be like that. So that, that's pretty much the, like a long story of how the book came about. <laughs> Thank you for that. So I'm going to ask you another question now. Um, Violence against women, I would say important again to highlight male violence against women is deemed a major public health problem and a violation of women's human rights by the World Health Organization. Now, we could spend all evening on just this question, but I am going to ask you to be brief because we've got a few more to go through. Can you talk a a bit about the context in which this work needed to be done? what works specifically about the psychology of victim blaming well i think what is it about male violence against women and the world health organization stats what sort of thing context are we talking about what sort of lives are women living what are we subjugate subjected to that this work actually needed to be done in the first place i think the way i see it 
and, and from the research, even though there is, I think there's a reluctance to actually talk about the scale of violence, of male yes. violence against women. So what you'll find sometimes is like a one in three stat here or a one in five stat there. But nobody likes to actually quantify that. And so, so for example, the one in three stat in the UK means that between 10 and 15 million women have been raped or abused. But nobody likes talking about that. The other thing people don't like talking about is flipping those statistics, those big ones, global ones, national ones on their head and saying, the scale of this problem is that if 10 million females in this population have been abused or raped, where are all the abusers and the rapists? Because that means there's millions and millions of men that commit rape. And that's the, I think that's what we live in is this like really broad um, misogynistic patriarchal society where male violence against women, it's not just tolerated, it's actually encouraged, it's supported, it's ignored. Um, so the work, I guess, it sits in that context that, it is really difficult to try and make any um, positive change if we're just, we're still having to undo the basics. I mean, think about what this book actually is. All I'm saying is like women aren't to blame. That's, that's where we are at tackling this problem. That's really quite basic at where we are because of how powerful and systemic male violence is. Thank you. I, I would agree. I'm just going to pick up on a couple of comments here. And if anyone wants to add any more questions, then do the Q&A function is at the bottom of the screen. So please add your questions there and we'll try and get through to them. So Jess, I'm, this is from Helen. Jess, I'm totally 100% behind you midway through my PhD and feel exactly the same. Why the long words? Been following Jess on Twitter for years. So delighted to be here um, and hearing her tell the truths that we know. Um, currently about to, oh, that's a question. We'll save that one for later. Everyone, I'm in Portsmouth, Jess. I love this book. Thank you for writing it. So for those who maybe have been busy, there's been a lot going on um, in our lives. What is victim blaming and how prevalent is it? Okay, so victim blaming is that transference of blame away from the perpetrator who holds 100% of the blame for their actions and 100% of responsibility. They made an active choice with free will to abuse women harm women rape women kill women and moving that back to that woman uh, as a victim of serious crime and victim blaming comes in different types so generally we split it into behavioral blame characterological blame and situational blame and um they're they're actually really useful to know because you'll spot them more and more especially in the media so the first thing that tends to happen is we attack the behavior of the woman, which is behavioral blame. So when we hear that a woman has, you know, been abused or attacked or something like that, the first thing we tend to do as a society, because it's women and men, victim blame at the same rates, there's no difference statistically between the way men and women victim blame women, is that we'll attack her behavior. So it's things like, why did she go there? What's she doing on a dating app? Why didn't she get a taxi? Why did she walk home? Why is she on the tube on her own? So they're behavioural forms of blame about things she did, her actions. When behavioural blame doesn't quite cut it, so say, for example, someone goes, oh, well, um, she didn't do any of those things. Then the next thing that happens is um, characterological blame, which is where we attack the character of the woman and the personality of the woman. Um, so it'll be she's stupid, she's naive, she's promiscuous, she's too self-confident, she's got too 
Uh, she, her self-esteem is too low. She's naive. She's too trusting. Like all of these things that we might say about a woman's, you know, character. More and more, though, what you'll see is a mixture of that. It's a mixture of characterological and um, behavioural blame, where it's sort of like, she's so stupid. Why didn't she just get a taxi? So it's like a mixture, um, which is more and more common now. And then the last one is situational victim blaming, which is a really odd form of victim blaming that doesn't always blame the victim. It like blames the situation they're in. So it might be like, well, you know, if you go to parties like that, what did she expect to happen? It's like to have a party, probably. Like it's a really weird form of victim blaming. It's like, well, you know, if if you go through parks like that in the dark, that's what happens at parks in the dark. It doesn't, does it? Unless it's a sex offender there. So it's a weird form of victim blaming, but because it's situational. However, what you need to notice about all those forms of victim blaming is that characterological, behavioural, and situational blame they erase the offender. They, it means that all of your conversations end up about the woman or the girl or her lifestyle or her background or what she looks like or where she went. So you end up not actually discussing the perpetrator at all. Someone said sexual terrorism on the um, Caroline. Caroline has said sexual terrorism on the, um, on the chat. Um, I would agree, Caroline, completely. So if you were to summarise this wonderful book, um, if you were to summarise the most important outcomes of your research into this area, what would there be? And was there anything that emerged from your research that shocked or surprised you? Um, okay, so to sort of summarise it, I think um, some of the like, most important things are that um, I developed the first measure of blaming of women which could be used so that was like a really big thing that's in the book there's a couple of chapters on that it's called the BOSFA and the BOSFA is a psychometric measure that will um, help professionals and researchers and even juries we could use in the police to measure how much um, people believe that women are to blame for being subjected to male violence um so that's important. That's in there. And it talks about how that works and, you know, the different ways that we blame women. I had some feedback recently from some judges, um, so Crown and magistrates who had read the book, saying that they they were using it actively in courts to spot the different forms of victim blaming that, like, the defence were using, which, like, I've... That's quite interesting because that's not... Like, I hadn't really thought of it like that, but, yeah, I'd the judges were telling me that's how they were using it. Um, from a point of view of women's well-being and women's psychology, one of the most important things in the book and um, that come out of the whole piece of research was that in all the research in the psychology of victim blaming up to up until my work, there was an assumption that women were just a bit thick. And I know that sounds awful, but there was a lot of ri- lot written about women in clinical and forensic psychology that suggested that women just like absorb messages from society like they're dead naive and they don't have their own brain and and the the reason that they blame themselves for sexual violence is because they just absorb it from someone and then they just take it into their own belief systems and that's how it's talked about it's sort of like oh you know women just absorb other people's beliefs they don't challenge them they don't interrogate belief systems and stuff and that like all the women I interviewed were constantly interrogating it. Even women who blamed themselves for being sexually abused or raped or, or assaulted, they would say things like, 
I know logically that I'm not to blame, but I still feel like I am and I can't, I can't pull those things apart. It's like, I know it was his fault and I know he chose to do that, but I can't shake the feeling that I could have done something more. And actually that shows the complexity of women's feelings around blame. Um, and all of the research up to that had suggested that women just blame themselves and that was it. And I, it was so, so oversimplified. So, like, I, for me, one of the most important things that comes out of the interviews uh, with women is that, is that, you know, we've really oversimplified women's thinking processes in psychology, which we often do. Um, but then I also interviewed professionals, and one of the most important things that came out of that was that the interviews with professionals um, really did show a level of, like, embedded internalised misogyny, even in the best therapists that I found where they would assume things like you know oh if they can't challenge their own self-blame it's because you know they're weak or it's because they must have been abused in childhood or they've got unresolved issues you know and like even when I challenged them in the interviews I was like where where have you got that notion from (laughs) like they they couldn't tell me but they were so sure that it was like women's own fault if they couldn't challenge their own self-blame and that almost like a victim mentality that they thought women had that needed to be challenged I've done quite a lot of work with professionals to try and unpick some of that so that was useful as well thank you very very much and there was a race and class element that emerged from your work and I think one of the biggest things that came out was actually that more research much more research needs to be done um, but have you got, do you want to expand on what you did find? Yeah, so um, I thought it was really important to include as much, like I mean, as like literally as much as I could find of the research that looked specifically at women um, from different cultures, communities and religions as well, who had been blamed for sexual violence or had been, or blamed themselves. And the um, body of work around that's not big at all. Um, it's, it's really underdeveloped. Um, there's a lot of assumptions about black women, about South Asian women, about East Asian women. Um, every now and then you find a decent study, but it's just not good enough. The data isn't good enough. Um, so I did my best to pull it together because I had never seen it before. And I thought that it would, you know, it's really important that we... S- like we need to stop making these conversations so white and so middle class. Um, so one of the chapters looks at all the evidence base, even though there's not a lot, and I do say that in the book, of, you know, for example, um, Latina culture that um, and like the way that women, like Latina women are victim blamed and blame themselves is culturally specific, the same as black women, um, you know, the same as South Asian women, there is a cultural, religious, um, like, there's a thread in that, that you can't just apply research from white middle-class university students and then say, oh, this is the same way that these women blame themselves. There's so much more complexity. There's there's so many different pressures on those women. Um, uh, You know, there was some really... There's some really depressing studies that I read that they like touched on the fact that black women who are being victim blamed for sexual violence, they're not just dealing with the victim blaming, they're dealing with the racism and they're also dealing with the institutional racism of the police, the social workers, the health service, which means that 
they're going in, they're disclosing they've been raped. Then they're dealing with, um, you know, the assumptions about their sexuality, about their culture, about their religion, about their beliefs, about their families. Um, I interviewed a woman recently, actually, for another project. And she was saying to me that nobody even asked her her ethnicity. And it says on all of her records that she's African. And she's not like nobody even asked her like at all. Um, and she said that she only found out when she asked for a record after they had been really quiet. I mean, they'd been disgusting to her, actually. They'd actually made comments on her records after she disclosed rape. Uh, about her hair because she had like afro hair and they'd said that she was unkempt and that she didn't look after herself and it's all in her records from her disclosing rape and sexual violence it's absolutely disgusting so it's like that intersectionality between you know all of us as women and girls have a really rough time um disclosing sexual violence and abuse but you know when you're a woman of color you've just got so much else and I tried to pick that up in the book, but I won't pretend that I covered it all because I just we need so much more research on it. Like you said, there's there's much more to be done. So yeah. Lucy's talking in the chat and she says she's recently had to represent herself um, in court and she felt along with local um, colluded, she was blamed, told she's got to draw a line in the sand and get over it. I find it disgusting yeah. in 2021. But they still don't even understand the depths of trauma. Love your love your book, Jess. Keep doing the work. Um, so I'm going to focus on a couple of chapters in the book, and then I'm going to move to questions that have been sent in because <laughs> there is a huge volume of them. So um, coming to me- the media, so the sheer volume of objectification, sexualization, and sexual violence against women in the media is staggering. And I'm not even at this point talking about pornography. Um, I've been to the cinema numerous times, got up, walked out. I am sick and tired of seeing rape, sexual assault by men of women. I'm absolutely sick to the back teeth of it. Um, It's sort of the wallpaper of our so-called entertainment nowadays. And you look at this and you say it appears that mass media in all its forms is the vehicle in which sexual violence is embedded as normal, trivial, exciting and fun. So can you talk more about this in the media and the relationship between the portrayal of women and girls in the media and and victim blaming, please. Thank you. Mm, Okay. Okay, so you're absolutely right, what you just said, in that, you know, we've got this sensationalisation that um, sexual violence is sexy, that women really like it, that they want it, um, that it's a normal part of relationships, that women expect it in some way like everything from like game of thrones through to like really big budget movies often they'll feature violence against women rapes of women sexism misogyny comments even just the storylines are just awful like women are often an afterthought their characters are very underdeveloped the way that um they're positioned in storylines is that they're often an object for men or or um a love interest for men uh, they don't often get their own plots. Sometimes they don't even speak that much. You just don't notice. Um, and so we've got, you know, things like soap storylines that uh, we found from the research that anywhere between sort of 30 and 47% of soap storylines that depict a woman being raped um, will either depict that the woman lied about being raped and that'll be the plot 
or that the woman was asking for it and she was cheating or she was in some way promiscuous or something like that. Um, and that will be the plot. There are very, very few plots in, in soaps that are consumed by millions and millions of people that actually, um, you know, depict sexual violence against women and also the trauma in, in any um you know useful or real way and um it, i who was i speaking to i can't remember who it was or whether i've read this it all merges into one now but um there was this example that was given about someone saying why are women always depicted as being raped and then going and standing dramatically in a shower and scrubbing themselves with a brush right and that the point of that is really important is that we've created um, a media narrative of what happens when women get raped is that they behave in a certain way, they do a certain thing, and then they get all their stuff and they go to a police station and they tell the police and then the police go and arrest the man. And it's not true. That's not what happens in real life. But unfortunately, that does influence millions of people to believe that that is what happens. Um, we know that the media of all different kinds, soaps, adverts, posters in the backs of toilets, you know, dramas, uh, films, they um, tend to feed into rape myths and uh, gender role stereotypes. There's often, even to the point where I found that even decades of research with psychologists tend to use scenarios where women are subjected to very rare forms of sexual violence, like you know, walking in the street and being abducted and dragged into a van and then being beaten with weapons. And that, you know, with them, they go to the police and they've got all this DNA evidence and then the CCTV. And you just think this isn't realistic. 97% of all sexual violence occurs in the home with somebody you know. There aren't witnesses. There's no CCTV. There's no, you know, the majority of women, only um, between 12 and 13% ever even report to the police. So it, it's not even common. The, uh, to show, you know, women reporting. So you've got all of these stereotypes in the media um, about women and girls, about their sexuality, about their sex lives, even about the way that they, you know, consent or don't consent. And then it's all, you know, thrown back at you in these stereotypes, whether that's by a police officer or a social worker or your, or your mom or your best friend. Everybody is taking in that level of media People, even people that think that they're fairly critically minded will often, you know, have spent thousands of hours taking in media narratives about things. So that definitely contributes to the victim blaming of women and girls. So um, you tackle head on the misogyny within psychiatry and you highlight the pathologizing um, of what are, uh, you alluded to it earlier, justifiable responses to trauma. And there's a very long record of women being dismissed and blamed by mental health services. So could you tell us a little bit about that history and the current situation in psychiatry and why you say that this chapter is of vital importance? Okay, yeah. So from, from as far back, you have to go back to the witch trials. You have to go back to witch burnings, right? Because... Before psychiatry was a thing, before there was any such thing as mental illness, the first thing before that was possession and, and women as evil, satanic demons. They've been possessed by ghosts, things like that, right? So if you go for, like far back enough, what you'll find is that women and girls who were burnt, hung, 
it's not hung, it's hanged. I'm always told that, you know, and I'd never get it right. Hanged. Um, and, you know, um, persecuted in some way or outcast or murdered. They would often be women that were gender non-conforming, women who didn't want to get married, uh, women who read books, women who were interested in politics. You know, they, they were very much women. It was a way of silencing and shutting down women. Um, and it was done with the power of the church and the church would put out propaganda that women who behaved in these specific ways were actually possessed by Satan um, and that he was in their bodies and in their minds. And one of the things that they used to do a lot of was demonize female sexuality and the female um, reproductive system. So periods, pregnancy, miscarriage. And those were the women that would be called witches and would be killed and things like that. So if they didn't have periods or if they were on their period a lot or if they couldn't give birth or if they were seen as infertile, if they couldn't have babies, whatever. Um, And as as okay so like the witch stuff peaked in a big way and we know that hundreds of thousands of women were murdered um and then there was um a bill that was passed in the sort of mid to late 1700s that argued essentially against um witchcraft and magic and stuff but what was so interesting about that was around that time was the rise of um like medicalizing women so it was the same groups of women but instead of being evil they were now crazy and so what they would do is lock them in asylums and torture them to death instead and they would practice medicine on them um, and they would do all sorts of things to them and it was again around gender role stereotypes so you could be sectioned for not smiling enough you could be sectioned for being ugly you could be sectioned for being overweight You could be sectioned for not having sex with your husband enough. You could be sectioned for refusing to get married. So if she was gay or if she was, you know, this stuff wasn't talked about. So they'd just get sectioned. Um, They would be medicated. They would be beaten. And that's the legacy. That's like the where psychiatry started. And we also know from the history of psychiatry that um, black women were um, especially targeted by doctors and clinicians who wanted to test on them because there were a lot of racist assumptions about black brains, black bodies and things like that. So we know that um, some of the worst experiments were done on black women. So this went on for a long period of time and it became almost like an obsession with doctors. Nobody was a psychiatrist because there was no such thing as psychiatry at that point. There was no such thing as psychology. psychology. And what they really were were just elders, like men who had said that they were doctors, who would then go and work in these facilities and just abuse women 24 hours a day. And what's so weird about the history of psychiatry is that over a period of time, that actually gained credence. It actually became a real thing. Uh, rather than being, you know, criticised or pulled apart. The anti-psychiatry movement that actually brings all of this stuff up didn't even exist until the 1960s. So we went for like 300 years thinking this shit was real. Um, And so it was, what we've got then is like hundreds of years of things like mass womb extractions, because they used to believe that women didn't conform or didn't behave properly because their womb was making them mad. 
which is um, where the term wandering womb comes from and hysteria. So the belief that the women's uh, uterus would move around the body. So it would detach from all the other organs and it would move all into your brain and in your heart and down into your legs and stuff. And it would make you crazy and not listen to men. Um, and so wandering womb syndrome was seen as a real thing. And then they would treat women for wandering womb syndrome for not behaving in a particular way, uh, usually by mass womb extractions, and they would often die from those. So, you know, psychiatry has an extremely dark, disgusting history. And the, the reason that I still feel very strongly about it is because a lot of the evidence of psychiatry being abusive and oppressive uh, to women um, and girls is still there. So the criteria for hysteria from DSM-3, which is the Diagnostic Manual for Psychiatrists and Doctors and Clinical Psychologists, in DSM-3, which was many years ago now, you, you used to be able to diagnose women with hysteria, and um, which was based on wandering womb syndrome. And um, now we're at DSM-5, just about to be into DSM-6, and the exact criteria for hysteria is now called borderline personality disorder there's not a single symptom that's been changed which means that all we've done is gone from made-up bullshit to some more made-up bullshit and borderline personality disorder disproportionately impacts women and girls who've been abused you're seven times more likely to be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder if you're a woman or girl who's been subjected to male violence and that's not a coincidence um so I feel really strongly about this and it is one of the most important chapters and I, uh, I know this is what my next book is on. So my next book is coming out. I'm just finishing writing it at the moment, but I'm going to, it's going to be an, it's going to be a nightmare. I just know it is, but I'm going to basically write the first book that's specifically about the way women are oppressed in psychiatry so we'll see look forward to reading it we'll call you we'll call you for it back for another <laughs> another discussion when that comes out so i'm going to move on now to the questions that women are sending in and i'm going to ask you to try and be brief only because so many questions have come in i want to cover as many of them as possible in the time that we've got left so what's your view on those who encourage women to take up self-defense it's helpful and realistic but burdens women and i have to say at Philia, women asked for self-defense classes and we we put them on and um yeah i'd be really interested to hear your answer to this one i i don't agree with it but only from the point of view that i think it's another way of putting the responsibility on women and girls and there are no other forms of crime that we tell members of the public to go and get like self-defense classes for um it, it and it just shows i think it just shows the miso the misogyny is that this is the one crime where we'll literally turn around to potential victims and go you need to be trained in martial arts um and that like that's where my issue sits with that i also though from the evidence there's no there's no evidence that suggests it works either it does work so generally from the research it shows that it helps women feel empowered and it increases self-esteem but what we know is that if you're actually in abuse or exploitation or trafficking, being able to use martial arts is useless if you're in a power dynamic, if you're oppressed, if you're controlled, if, you know, what, so like, for example, you, I always say to people who really support the um, martial arts stuff and the self-defense stuff is to look up 
women in the UFC who are victims of rape and domestic violence, who are literally the most elite MMA martial artists in the world who could not defend themselves when they were being abused by a man, when they were subjected to domestic violence in their homes, when they were raped by their husbands. Because it, it, what it does is it ignores the trauma response. 70% and above of women who are raped or abused will freeze. They won't be able to move. And that's a normal, completely normal, completely common trauma response. Um, so it worries me that, I don't know, it puts a lot of responsibility on women that they should have fought back. That's what worries me about it mainly. Thank you. Um, so here's another one. Do you think women seek to blame each other because bizarrely it may give a greater sense or illusion of control? We want to believe there are rules. And if we keep to them, we will be safe. The idea that we can't be safe no matter what we do is just too scary. Yeah, so that's right. There's a whole chapter in the book about that. There's there's two separate theories that you're talking about there. One of them is called um, the theory of perceived control. And basically that the perceived control is that if you can tell yourself that it happened to that woman for that reason and you're not going to make those same mistakes because you're different from her, she's naive, you're not going to make those mistakes, then you have this sense of perceived control that it will never happen to you and that it was her fault. So you can like reassure yourself and give yourself some psychological safety that it won't happen to you because you'll never be as stupid as her or you would have fought back or you would have done something or you would have gone to the police. It is rubbish, obviously, but it 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 gives us psychological safety in a world where actually we know that we're not safe. So that's one bit of it. And then the other thing you're talking about is belief in a just world, which is like the theory that things happen for a reason and that, um, you know, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Um, and that if you're a good person and you do the right thing, then it won't happen to you. And that if it's happened to another woman, it must be because she did something wrong. And it's about finding what she did and then changing her behavior. So we do do that. We, you know, women are not immune from that at all. Thank you. So a couple more questions that sort of tie in together. How do we change this research, yours and others, into action? Um, and I'm really angry now as I see victim blaming everywhere. What can we do to address it? It's not a serious answer to that. <laughs> um, a legal answer. <laughs> oh, I don't, there's nothing. I don't have anything then. Alongside the feminist um, revolution, of course. So what can we do um, about it? Okay, well, there there is loads of things we can do. Like, you know, we can we can demand more of the media. I for anybody interested, I get asked all the time by journalists for advice on how to write good articles about domestic and sexual violence of women that don't actually blame them. Journalists want to know. They want to know how to do it. And then I was approached by a very very big media outlet that you would all know, and they were like, "Oh, could you train all our journalists?" And I was like, yeah, this is how much it would be. And they were like, yeah, no, we're not paying for it. And I was like, hmm, interesting. So like, it's what that told me was that journalists that are doing the job, writing these awful stories, their language is atrocious. There's actually quite a lot of them being like, we're not trained to do this. We don't know how to do it. We need some advice. Um, so like, we can lobby for change. We can provide resources, which Victim Focus is going to be releasing a free guide for journalists because it's so desperately needed because um, just, we just need to do it. We're going to have to just bite the bullet and do it. So we can do things like that. We can challenge each other. Language is a really big one. Like, um, you can challenge language. You can challenge the way you think. Like, if you find yourself doing it, you can be like, whoa, stop. 
it's 100% the offender's fault. There is nothing about that woman that brought that on. You need to stop yourself or, or someone else needs to stop at that point. So you can challenge sort of language. If you're a professional, you can challenge it in your place of work. You can bring your kids up not to like look for what's wrong with victims and like, you know, oh, they should have told somebody, mommy, or why didn't they do something? Or why didn't they tell a teacher? Like, like, cause sometimes you can't. And so like, you can, you can actually have quite an impact um, around you. Um, if you're a professional, if you're a parent, even with your friends and your family and, and you know, people around you, I think there's a lot we can do like with systems, the, um, justice system just needs like flattening and just starting again um so we'll see where we go with family court and with criminal court reform but we do need to do quite a bit of work around that um policing needs a reform social care needs better training they're not resourced enough and they don't know what they're doing a lot of the time they're making really basic mistakes because they don't understand trauma they don't understand sexual violence you know some of their training some of these people doing these jobs they get half a day every couple of years that's it. And then they're holding 40 cases. They're not going to do it right. Um, and then we, we put so much pressure on them whilst organisations are just not training them. So there's a lot we could do. And talking about systems, um, I saw something right today about the Centre for, Women, for Women's Justice. Not even a week after the second reading of the domestic abuse bill in the House of Lords, the government is seeking to pass a bill which would enable undercover operatives to commit violence against women including rape and sexual violence with impunity so please everyone follow the center for women's justice and, and follow that um, that's ongoing at the moment so here's another question yeah. is it victim blaming to warn your daughter about the dangers out there for example don't leave your drink don't get separated from friends and get a taxi home people ask me this all the time there is a very thin line there that you have to like you, you have to decide where you stand on this I would, um, I tend not to talk to children like that at all. Like, and um, I, the way that I get around it is to instead talk about perpetrators. So not like you need to be protecting your drinks. You need to be doing this. Like you shouldn't go out wearing that because you're going to attract the wrong attention is instead all the conversation should be about perpetrators. And like, you know, some perpetrators will do this. Some people will do this. Some people will do that. I like, and you know, this is how they might do it. And I think that there is a line where you can give basic safety information to another human because you love them and you protect them. I think it moves into victim blaming at the point where you then think that's their fault if they don't do that or if that if that it doesn't work. So I, I, I was contacted by a guy once whose daughter had been attacked and he, he, he basically asked me the same thing. And he was like, is it victim blaming for me to, you know, sort of said to her, like, keep an eye out on night out. Don't leave your friends. Don't do this. Don't do that. Um, and then she'd been, she'd been raped on a night out. And I said to him, it will turn into victim blaming. If you turn around to her and go, I told you, you know, not to leave your friends and to like, keep an eye on your drink and like, you know, why, why are you not more aware? Like we've had these conversations for years and you've not listened. That's where it switches. So like, it's so, so gently balanced, I think. Thank you. Um, I think you're absolutely right. So how has victim blaming changed with the increase of the use of mobile phones and social media, et cetera? Um, we have definitely got an issue <laughs> with literally any digital crime committed against women and girls, like it doesn't even exist. So 
we are bad enough as it is responding to physical crimes against women and girls like assault and abuse and rape but if a woman rings the police and says i don't know some man just sent me three rape threats on facebook there's even less interest in that crime it's like it's just facebook like just block it and it like women get responses all the time where it's like why don't you just delete your account why why do you even use social media or why don't you just take your pictures down well if you didn't want people to say that why did you post that thing so there's a lot of victim blaming for digital crimes where for example you know um even I went through I've been through it twice last year once was when the book came out and I was trolled by like thousands of men and sent death threats and rape threats and when I reported it to the police when my laptop was hacked the the first three police officers I spoke to all suggested that it was my own fault for having a public profile that it was my own fault for writing a controversial book and that I should have known it was coming and I should just delete all my social media and I just had the biggest rows with them Um, And then later on in the year, end of November, my images were being sold on the internet, which was, they still are. Um, And when I spoke about that, it was the majority women, actually feminists, like who I look up to, who commented and like basically laughed at me and said, well, it's your own fault for putting pictures up of yourself and that's why they're being sold. So like, there's this real, I have a real interest in the way that digital crimes aren't taken seriously. Like, so many women and girls I know have been harassed online. They've had death threats, rape threats. They've been sent disgusting, violent messages. And there's almost like this desensitization from justice systems where they're like, yeah, but it's just Facebook though, isn't it? It's just like, they're just messages, not real. And like, I've had police say things like, if they turn up at your house, that's harassment, but it's not harassment if it's online. That's just made up. That's not real. That's not what the law says. So, yeah, I think I don't, it's been awful. I think it's almost like emboldened violence against women, but then it's also allowed it as well. I would agree. And I don't, I don't think that the hosts, like Twitter and Facebook, help at all, um, actually. So, okay, so we're really running out of time now, but I want to fit this one in and hopefully another one. Should frontline practitioners in domestic violence services be worried that services are moving away from naming male violence against women? Um, and, and instead of violence against women, it's now just called gender-based violence. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think I think that's a problem. I, I think that's a symptom of a much larger shift that's happening, where we are okay, we are neutralising language. That's what you should see it as: is that it is the deliberate neutralisation of a global, very specific form of crime against women and girls. And women and girls are being erased from that so that they can make it sound more palatable and so they don't have to stand with women's rights. So it becomes bull- like these bullshit phrases, gender-based violence or just domestic violence, or they'll say things like abuse has no gender or, you know, abuse, like, abuse happens to anyone. It technically could happen to anyone, but statistically it doesn't, does it? So I think it's a major issue. And there are some um, sexual violence and domestic violence organisations that are having none of it. But there are some that are just getting swept along with it. And it's like they don't understand what they're giving away by giving away the language around women and girls. I see the same with male violence. People get really uncomfortable when you say male violence. And they're like, well, it's domestic violence. Yeah, but it's predominantly males, isn't it? Because it's like... 97 to 99% of all those offences are committed by men. So, you know, call it what it is. And there's like, 
there's a real move away from that as well. I, it's not going to help. It's not going to, when you stop being able to define things and talk about them in real terms, how do you even approach them? How are you going to solve something you can't even talk about? Yes, and the United Nations, and, and again, coming back to the systemic, systemic nature of this, the United Nations is guilty of this as well. Um, and I agree with you uh, and the person, the woman who asked the question as well. So can we fit one more in? Right. Um, I wondered if Jessica might want to say something about cuts to legal aid, which means women aren't getting representation and people may get cross-examined by their assailant. Yeah. Yeah, it's honestly, um, legal aid saved my arse at 18. There's no way, there's no way I could have gone through what I went through without legal aid at 18. Um, And I remember the slow sort of insidious process of cutting at it and cutting at it until it was gone. I still think it's one of the worst possible things that could have ever happened. It disproportionately impacts women that that need help around domestic violence, sexual violence, injunctions, harassment, um, stuff like that. It's, I think in some ways it, it just echoes how little women are cared about it's majority women that suffered with with legal aid getting pulled and that's why no one cares because it's just women that it impacted um I, it i honestly i would be if there was something anything that we could set up and fund any way of doing it sometimes i think about how we could build almost like a pro bono huge network of lawyers and solicitors that could, because that's all it needs really. It doesn't need to necessarily be a really fancy financial system, but that, but there has to be an answer. It's honestly, yeah, totally. It's it's horrific. It's, I think it's deliberate in a way because it means that women have no power. It means that men with money can drag you through court for months or years and you've got nothing and like nobody protecting you. You've got no resources. I can't, Im- I can't imagine it now. Like if I had to go through that again now, like without legal aid, I don't know what I would have done. Um, someone's made the comment, the government should pay for it properly. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and someone else has said about, yeah, it makes me mad not naming male violence too. You do amazing work for women and girls. Thank you very much. Uh, somebody's made the comment that there seems to be a weird paradox that male super perps such as Jack the Ripper are talked about endlessly and their crimes described in gruesome detail fetishized while we scarcely mention or remember any details, even the names of their female victims. But when it comes to assigning, assigning blame, we focus all of our attention on the women, what, what they did to get themselves hurt. Yeah, let's comment on that. And then I think I'm going to draw things to a close. But would you comment on that observation? I just completely agree with you. There is a, um, it really worries me how much we glorify male violence. Like you said, like Ted Bundy, Jack the Ripper. There's like, you know, um, there's so, well, there's so many, but like there are like, there are endless documentaries about these men, like about their lives and their, the things they do and what they look like and their childhoods. Like, I don't give a shit. Like what? Like they're just violent offenders, and we keep we keep leveling them up to like godlike status. Um, I really hate it. I don't watch the documentaries and all the obsessive CSI type stuff around, you know, all of these like serial offenders because I really hate. I hated the Ted Bundy movie. I think that was awful. 
it disgusted me. You're right. It's it. It's like we're obsessed with them. It's like we think they're like the ultimate. I don't know. Is it like the ultimate toxic masculinity? And we're like a bit um, intrigued or something. I don't know what it is. I think we're quite. I think we're like so much more. Um, we, we are getting more and more obsessed with like gore. There's quite a lot of psychologists that look at why we do that. Some people think it's cathartic. It's like a way of us processing it. But I, I think some of it is actually about like the glorification and sensationalization of it. That it's almost like cool. I would agree. So we're going to draw this to a close. And I just want to say thank you. Someone's put the normalization of violence towards women. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank you for all of your questions. I'm really sorry that we didn't get through all of them. Um, but I want to just finish by saying thank you, Dr. Jessica Taylor, for bringing all of those strands together in one place in your book and, and for your tireless work on victim blaming, but also more broadly on male violence against women um and girls and 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 your focus on women's rights and we'll stick details of the book and jess's website um which will accompany the podcast to this discussion and and i just want to say thanks to the funders of the philia legacy project and and thank you very very much to the women who joined us this evening and take good care and yeah see you next month thanks jessica thanks ever so much thank you Thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. We are incredibly grateful to all the women who donate their time and their efforts to create this podcast. That includes our guests, our interviewers, and our editors. You can find us on your favorite listening platforms like Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Just search for Philia Podcast. Please help us reach even more women. You can do that by subscribing to our show, by sharing this podcast with your friends, with your family, and with your co-workers, or by leaving us a positive rating and review. Philia organizes the largest annual grassroots feminist conference in the UK. We would love to see you there. You can support our work by joining the Friends of Philia scheme, by giving a solidarity ticket so that even more women can join our conference, and by subscribing to our newsletter. Please take a look around our website, philia.org.uk, to find out more. Together, women make magic happen, and we can't wait to be in touch with you.